The year is 1962, and all is well inside the offices of DC Comics. DC is the undisputed leader in superheroes. DC publishes Superman and Batman. Hardly gets any bigger than that, right? Nothing can touch DC. Or can it? On this particular night, two of the company's writers are working late. Arnold Drake is a New York City native who began creating his own comics when he was briefly bedridden as a child. He's feisty and outspoken. The other writer, Bob Haney, is a Navy veteran. He's a former novelist from Philadelphia who turned to comics when he needed money. Both are now middle-aged. On this late night, the men are bored. They're looking for something to read, so they head to another part of the building's 10th floor, where new comic books are kept before they're sent to the newsstands. It's deserted. Everyone else has gone home for the night. Periodicals are stacked high. Not just DC's wares, but those of other comic book publishers, too. The writers absent-mindedly flip through the comics. They're looking for something, anything that catches their eye. Haney's reading something he randomly pulls from the pile that stops him cold. Arnold! Arnold, over here, check this out. What is it? Look at this stuff here. Read this. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, these comics are these comics are terrific, really far out. The men are puzzled, and rightfully so. The comics they've stumbled across are from a publisher that had nearly gone out of business just a few years back. The company's now a shadow of its former self, releasing just a handful of titles each month. Hell, it's only got one full-time employee. But in these comics, Drake and Haney see a different kind of energy. It's wild, it's, it's youthful, but it's also mature storytelling. There are intriguing, well-developed characters. Where did this come from? Both men feel like they're looking at the future of comics. And what alarms them is that DC is going to be left out of this future. They grab a couple of the magazines to show DC's top executive. They got to warn him about this new approach to comics. They just hope it's not too late. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. 
today, we're continuing with a decades-long rivalry between Marvel and DC. This is Episode 2, The Fantastic Mr. Lee. In our last episode, we met Stan Lee, a frustrated writer and editor at Marvel Comics, who in 1960 vowed to quit the business. That is, until his boss, worried about DC's success with Justice League of America, asked Lee to create competing comic characters. Well, Lee vowed to do his superhero comic his way, and that decision would launch the so-called Marvel Age that unleashed a flood of new stories and new heroes who are to this very day on top movie marquees around the world. It is these comics that DC writers Haney and Drake happened upon that night in 1962. See, the Marvel phenomenon didn't just happen overnight. It started in 1960 inside those spare Marvel offices on New York City's Madison Avenue. Stan Lee was set on creating a new superhero title, but he's just the writer and editor. He still needs an artist, someone with whom to collaborate, someone who can put pencil to paper and give life to whatever imaginative story the man can conceive of. And for Stan Lee, Stan Lee finds that man in a guy named Jack Kirby. Now, you may have never heard of him, and if that's the case, that's a bit of a shame, because he will become as important to Marvel's success as Stan Lee himself. Maybe he just needed a better publicist. Because Kirby, like Lee, is a native New Yorker born in 1917 on the rough-and-tumble Lower East Side. His father worked at a garment factory, and his family was poor. Kirby hated the neighborhood. It was full of gangs and violence. Kirby often got attacked on the streets or rooftops. He had to slug his way out, much like the heroes he would later create. Kirby became interested in comics one day, quite by chance. During a rainstorm, he saw a pulp magazine floating in the gutter on its way to the sewer, and on the cover was a drawing of a rocket ship. Kirby was intrigued. He began teaching himself to draw at age 11 by checking out how-to books from the library. He later started working professionally in animation and comics. His first major co-creation for Marvel is Captain America, who's dressed in a costume with an American flag motif. He has a nearly indestructible shield, which he can hurl at bad guys. And Captain America makes the leap to television in its early days. You remember the commissioner and I have cleaned up crime waves in this town before. Yes, that mysterious Captain America did most of your work for Kirby you. worked at Marvel for about a year before defecting to D.C. in 1941. But in the 50s, well, he came back to Marvel and soon became Lee's most reliable collaborator. The two churned out hundreds of romance, horror, and sci-fi stories through the years. So in 1960, when Stan Lee's boss gives him the freedom to challenge DC's breakout series, The Justice League of America, Lee taps Kirby as his collaborator. And he makes clear right away he wants to chart a new path. There's no way I'm going to copy what DC is doing. Let's make a different kind of superhero team. Lee is sick of writing stories for 10-year-olds. They're simplistic, boring. This time, Stan Lee's going to write something that an adult might like to read. Someone like himself, right? He wants something with realistic dialogue, character development, plots that haven't been recycled a billion times. He and Kirby get to work. They scribble notes. They begin to build characters. They cook up interpersonal dynamics. They flesh out ideas. They sketch figures, dream up plots, create universes, worlds. The result? 
is a comic about a group of adventurers who travel into space and are transformed after being bombarded by cosmic rays. He calls it the Fantastic Four. Here's how Lee describes the beginning of the character's self-discovery. They are all different now. They sense it, although they don't quite yet know how they've changed. Reed Richards, the group's leader, can transform himself into a stretchable man of rubber. His girlfriend, Susan Storm, can make herself invisible. Her brother, Johnny Storm, can turn into a fiery human torch. And they have a friend, Ben Grimm, who transforms into a rocky orange monster known simply as The Thing, stronger than an elephant, and a good bit uglier, too. The Fantastic Four don't see their newfound powers necessarily as a blessing. At first, the members of the Fantastic Four regard themselves as uh, monsters, almost. In fact, they react in horror when they first begin changing. For example, when Susan Storm sees her boyfriend, Reed Richards, begin to stretch, she's aghast. Oh, Reed, not you too. Reed's sickened. What's happened to me? To all of us? In a departure from DC's sanitized superheroes, the Fantastic Four also have serious foibles. This is a squabbling, sometimes dysfunctional, but still loving family. And unlike DC Comics characters who hide behind secret identities, these conflicted Marvel superheroes seem to bask in their celebrity status. Maybe like a regular people might. The first issue hits newsstands in November 1961. It doesn't exactly land with a thud, but it doesn't draw a huge audience either. The comics develop a modest but fervent readership, who immediately recognize that Lee and Kirby are doing something special with their new superheroes. They mail letters of praise that are printed in subsequent issues of the comic. The Fantastic Four is interesting and different, more, more interesting than any other comic magazine. I've just about had it with nice, polite editors making excuses for goody-goody comic heroes. I like your true-to-life personal conflicts among the four. Hope you retain the realism. Fantastic Four is, for the most part, an underground hit, but it's growing. Martin Goodman, founder of Marvel, soon asks Stan Lee to come up with other new superhero magazines. Now, Lee is a fan of Frankenstein, and he has an idea for a comic strip with a monster as the main figure, but a monster that readers can relate to as well. He calls Kirby into his office to talk about his big idea. Jack, see, the breakout character, I think, from the Fantastic Four is the thing. He's the one getting most of the fan mail. So let's do another monster character. How about it? Kirby lights up his cigar. Mm-hmm. But, 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 let's make this a monster who can change back and forth into a human. He's got a, he's got a secret identity like other superheroes do. Hmm. Okay. An anonymous nice monster. That's what you're saying. Jack. You're going to think I'm crazy, but can you draw a good-looking monster, or at least a sympathetic-looking monster? <laughs> okay, a good-looking monster. Got it. A brief backstory about this handsome monster. After a scientist is hit with gamma rays, he, the would-be monster, to his own horror, finds himself able to transform into a large, bulky, green, powerful creature. Lee flips through his thesaurus, looking for a name for this hero. Let's see, uh, Blob, uh, no, uh, Hunk. No, that's not right, uh, Hulk, Hulk. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's it. Let's, let's try the Hulk. 
Readers were drawn to the character's tragic story. Kirby later receives a letter from a college student saying his dormitories made the Hulk its official mascot. He and Lee know the character has struck some kind of chord. For Marvel's next hero, Lee has an interesting pitch for his boss, Martin Goodman. Okay, boss, I've been thinking. I want to do a story about a hero who has a bit of super strength, but his main power is that he can stick to walls. Got the idea from watching a fly in my office. (laughs) A fly on the wall, hmm? Well, okay, tell me more. See, this guy wouldn't be an adult like the other superheroes. He'd be a teenager, and he'd have the same problems as any normal teenager. You know, asthma, acne, girlfriend troubles, whatever. You know, Stan, teenagers aren't heroes, they're sidekicks. You know that. Uh, Also, superheroes don't have personal problems. They got it made, they're superheroes. This kind of sounds like a comedy character you're coming up with here. It's not a comedy, it's not a comedy, it's a drama. And here's the best part. I want to call this guy Spider-Man. What? That's a terrible name, Stan. Come on. People hate spiders. Ultimately, Goodman relents. Sort of. As a sop, Goodman includes the story in an anthology book called Amazing Fantasy. But Goodman knows it's going to be canceled anyway. As for Spider-Man, we probably don't need to tell you what happens next, do we? Marvel is exploding. It has gone from moribund to a hive of creativity in just a few months. Dozens of new titles and characters follow. Four, Daredevil, Iron Man, The X-Men, Black Panther. The company's imagination seems almost without limit, and so do its sales. Marvel goes from selling 16.1 million copies in 1960 to something closer to 32 million by 1965. Still a fraction of what DC is doing, but to many of its readers and demographic groups who previously might have turned up their noses at comic books, including college students, Marvel is getting it right. Marvel forms a fan club to accommodate its rabid new readers. And a little greater, walk a little prouder, be an innovator, clap a little louder, go around the we can show you how to, when will you be then? Yep, the Merry Marvel Marching Society. It's a wacky, fun-loving collection of Marvel's fearless face-fronters and titanic true believers, as Lee likes to call them. And how does DC react to Marvel's out-of-nowhere popularity, you might ask? Well, the venerable publisher was still comfortably ahead of Marvel, at least in terms of numbers, selling millions of Superman, Batman, and other comics a year, mostly the younger children. And so they remained the industry's blue chip for a while. Nonetheless, Drake and Haney took those early Marvel comics to DC chief Harry Donenfeld with a warning. Drake, Haney, come in. What's going on? You have to take a look at these. These are unlike any superhero comics you've ever seen before. Yeah, they got sophisticated plots and characterizations. Their heroes really, they feel like real people. Look, this is great stuff. Hmm. So, what? what we, we do $100 million a year and these guys do $45 million? Get out of my office. But, sir. Out. 
Donenfeld was sitting on a ton of cash, and that made him arrogant, you might say. But he failed to sense the shifting winds, even in his own office. If he had been paying attention, he might have noticed that there were defectors, or rather double agents, in his midst. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. Artist Gene Colan had been drawing romance comics at DC when he decided to quietly try his hand at Marvel's superheroes, without leaving DC, mind you. He'd play both sides using the pen name Adam Austin for Marvel's character Submariner. Lee is absolutely gleeful. Everybody's favorite guessing game these days is trying to figure out the real identity of the Submariner's powerful penciler, Adam Austin. As most of you have guessed, Adam Austin is only a nom de plume, and one of these days will reveal his real name to you. Colin's problem is that his drawing style is so distinctive, well, many immediately recognize his work, even under that pen name. Colin continues working surreptitiously for both companies, but one day his plan collapses completely when he stops by D.C. to drop off some artwork. As he's waiting for the elevator, the doors open and out walks Marvel's owner, Martin Goodman, there on whatever rare business brought him to D.C. in the first place. Hi, Gene, the Marvel honcho says, making it pretty clear to anyone within earshot at D.C. that Colin is working for the competition. Colin is in a tough spot there, but Lee calls the artist the very next day and offers him a full-time gig at Marvel, with better pay, too. The Marvel editor relishes poking DC in the eye at every turn and soon finds new ways to impishly antagonize his crosstown rival. His philosophy is that just because Marvel isn't number one doesn't mean they can't act like it. Beyond the new characters, one of Stan Lee's innovations at Marvel is to give the editorial pages a distinctive voice. Editorial pages in comics? Well, as a child, Stan Lee had read a line of children's novels in which the author responded to letters at the end of each book. Lee never forgot that, and he swore he'd try to make Marvel readers feel valued in the same way. He did that 
by communicating with them in a chummy, friendly tone on the publisher's letters pages and in a monthly column that ran in every Marvel comic. In the days before the internet, email and message boards, well, these were like the direct line to readers. And it was here that Lee begins to lob a few missiles DC's way. This will be the public battlefield between Marvel and DC. Lee sets out to build up the rivalry between the two publishers, and in doing so, force readers to pick a side. One of his favorite gags is to mock the competition as Brand Ech. It's a play on Brand X, a common euphemism in advertising used to refer to a competing product that can't be named. In 1965, Lee zings one DC's way. Have you noticed the sorry mess of Marvel imitations making the scene lately? Imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery and all that jazz, but we want to make darn sure no dyed-in-the-wool Marvel madman gets stuck with one of those inferior Brand X versions of the real thing. <laughs> Readers love this stuff. They soon get in on the act as well, adopting Lee's put-down and gleefully piling on DC. Two fans from New Jersey have this to say in a letter printed in a 1966 issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. When you're reading a Brand X comic, you're just reading a comic book. But when you're reading a Marvel mag, you stand a little taller, walk a little straighter, and talk a little prouder. Lee is having the time of his life. He's building an army of Marvel acolytes and stoking the burgeoning rivalry. In another column, he cheekily offers to sell DC some of Marvel's old scripts so they can catch up. Stay in the game, don't you know? The stiff suits over at DC are somewhat less amused. Who is this Stan Lee to take shots at them? He has a fraction of their sales. They have Superman, for God's sakes. Finally, though, Lee's sniping becomes too much. Perhaps driven by letters from their own readers angry about Marvel's treatment of DC, the company has no choice but to retaliate. The war of words is truly on now. The opening salvo comes in a 1965 issue of Superman's Action Comics. A reader named Howard Berger writes in to complain about Lee's incessant DC put-downs. A certain editor of a rival group of comic books is always belittling your magazines in his readers' departments with sly digs, barbs, and innuendos. He never shows a sense of fair play or sportsmanship because he always refers to DC group Brand X. Well, I suggest we DCers unite and refer to his books as Brand I. The I obviously stands for I complex. He's always telling his readers how great I am and how great are my stories. What do you think? DC's editor prints a pithy single-word response. Marvelous. Soon, Lee is getting torn up all over the place on DC's letter pages. One slams him as brand ego, another brand ugh, another copycat comics. The feud quickly spills over into the actual comic book stories. In one 1967 Batman comic, the hero is acrobatically twirling atop a flagpole when he remarks to himself... Here's one I did before anybody, including a certain web-spinning Peter come lately. Take that, Spider-Man. Marvel's rise through the 1960s is rapid. The comic publisher goes from about 18 million in sales in 1961 to 45 million in 1968. An enviable expansion indeed. But the company still trails rival DC in large part because DC is publishing more titles. And DC, well, they still feel as invincible as Superman. 
That would soon change, and the company that created the American superhero comic book is heading into choppy waters. It will soon find itself desperately trying to emulate the company it once shrugged off, often with embarrassing results. And when all else fails, it'll resort to theft. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, iHeartRadio, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Simply tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you'd like to hear more of Business Wars and other Wondery shows, in addition to extra content, early access, and exclusive perks, you can subscribe to Wondery Plus. Go to wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. And if there are some Business War stories you'd like to hear, let us know. I'm your host, David Brown. Reed Tucker wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our show's executive producer is Marshall Louie. And it was created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wandery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, The Wondery App, or wherever you're listening right now.